6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 45 through 49. Verse 19, Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the the swelling of the Jordan against the habitation of the strong, but will suddenly make him run away from her who is is a chosen man, that I may appoint over her for who is like me and who will appoint me the time, and who is that shepherd that will stand before me. Therefore hear the counsel of the Lord, he that hath taken against Edom and and his purposes, he that hath purposed against the inhabitants of Taman, Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their inhabitants desolate with them. The earth is moved at the noise of their fall, and the cry of the noise of it was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. And at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be like the heart of a woman in her pangs. There's that phrase again. Now, some passages you might find interesting reading on Edom. Um, as I mentioned, that uh, Ezekiel 25 and 35 deal a lot with Edom, and Joel 3, Amos 9, Obadiah, first 16, oh, 16 verses, Isaiah 21, Isaiah 34, but most interestingly of all, Isaiah 63, because when the Lord Jesus Christ is there seen covered with blood fighting for the enemies, and he comes from Basra, bloodstained. Isaiah 63. You don't have time to get into it now. This passage doesn't seem to focus on that particularly, but I, sh- I share that for some interesting. Edom was the home of Eliphaz of Job, chapter 2, which is an interesting book because it was probably published during the days of Joseph in Egypt. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible. He came from the land of Edom, apparently, which was known for its wisdom, according to Ezekiel 25. Okay, Edom, as I say, is south of Edom, really part of Arabia. We've talked about that. Um... Basra is a capital in, uh, in Jeremiah's time. Edom means the, also can mean the rock, which the word is Selah, and it's also the word Petra. So the city of Petra and the city of Basra are not co-located, but very close. They're all, they almost they, they poetically become synonyms. In the interest of time, I think we'll just keep moving on. The rest of these are fairly short, and then we'll try to summarize what we're really talking about here. Verse, uh, the, the next five verses are against Damascus. That's the city. We would see this as Syria because it's going to mention Hamath and Arpad, and I'll come back to that. Let's just jump in here. Concerning Damascus, Hamath is confounded and Arpad, for they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted. There is sorrow on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus is going to be here judged. Um, what's interesting is... Um, by the way, the palaces of Ben-Hadad are going to be destroyed before this over Israel's old enemy. Hamath is 110 miles north of Damascus, and Arpad is 95 miles north of Hamath. So don't think this is just a city thing. It's really Syria in broad. Damascus has grown feeble and turneth herself to flee. Fear hath seized on her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as of a woman in travail. There's that phrase again. How is the city of praise not left the city of my joy? Therefore her young men shall 
fall in her streets, and the men of the war shall be cut off in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Similar to the previous, it's just nailing another enemy, a traditional enemy of Israel. Uh, let's move on. And the next few verses are two cities, Kedar and Hazor. And you and I can visualize these and be close, reviewing them as Arabia. It wasn't Arabia then, their tribal environment, but that's the net of it. Um, concerning Kedar and concerning the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, shall smite, thus saith the Lord, Arise, go up to Kedar, and spoil the men of the east. What Jeremiah is really doing, he's taking a swing around Israel. In fact, we're going from west to east, essentially, and is, is nailing the, uh, the enemies of Israel. They're pointing out that Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer over these two, and of course he did, so it's a it's fulfilled prophecy. Not very impressive to us because all of this is so far past. It's not a, a you know, proof of text kind of thing but it is, is, is uh, uh, just consistent with uh, the rest of the message that we've been hearing. But uh, moving on, verse 29, Their tents, their flocks shall be, they take away, they shall take themselves their curtains and all their vessels and all their camels and shall cry unto them, Fear is on every side. Flee, go, far off, dwell deep, ye inhabitants of Hazor, saith the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath taken counsel against you and hath conceived a purpose against you. Arise, go up unto the wealthy nation that dwelleth without care, saith the Lord, that has neither gates nor bars, that dwells alone. Their camels shall be booty, the multitude of their cattle a spoil, and I will scatter into all the winds those who are in the utter, in the utmost corners, and I'll bring their calamity from all sides, saith the Lord. And Hazor shall be a dwelling place for jackals. Dragons maybe in some translations, but a more uh, proper use of the Hebrew word is, implies jackals. Shall be a dwelling place for jackals, and the desolation forever, and there shall be no man abide there for any son of man to dwell in it. This is not the fortress in northern Palestine. This is a desert region. There's a Hazor mentioned in Joshua 11. It's a different place. Um, Hazor is in effect, uh, and this is where we have the Ishmaelites, the offspring of Hagar's son from Abraham, uh, and, and typologically that's associated with the, the offspring of the bondwoman versus the free in Galatians chapter 4, and those of you that want to tie in that. Kedar is mentioned in Genesis 25, 13, Isaiah 21, 13, 16, and Ezekiel 27, 21, for those that want to chase Kedar down. Basically, we're seeing there a judgment against Arabia, further east and south. Now we get to Elam, and uh, we're going to make it, I think. We've covered a lot of ground. I realize this is um, dry stuff in some respects, but Let's go through the end of the chapter and then try to summarize and prepare you for next time, because that gets really wild. Elam, the word of the Lord uh, that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, oh, before I go on, let me, it may mean something more to tell you, who is Elam? You and I don't really deal with Elamites so much. He was the son of Shem in Genesis uh, 10, 22. Uh, Shadar Laomer, who was the king of Elam and four other kings feature in the famous thing with Abraham in Genesis 14, first 17 verses. You remember they captured Lot and Abraham, mounts an army of over 300 servants raised under his own roof. Gives you some glimmer of insight as to who Abraham was probably one of the most powerful richest men of the world at that time. He himself defeats this alliance. 
and uh, and rescues Lot and so forth. Famous issue in Genesis 14, you can read it on your own. Elam is traditionally an enemy of Jerusalem. Um, now, Elam uh, is about 200 miles east of Babylon. Um, they align themselves with a group called the Medes, who in turn ally themselves with the Persians. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is is that the, the they um, thus at the time Jeremiah is writing, Babylon is on the rise. Jeremiah is going to what what the Elamites do is they form an alliance with the Medes and the Persians that end up ends up putting down the most mighty nation, the world empire called Babylon, in future years. They in turn are going to be put down by the Macedonians under Alexander the Great. So in view, you have the rise and fall of three of the most powerful world empires ever made. Babylon, succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire, succeeded by the Greeks under Alexander. And so, um, um, oh, by the way, that was the other irony. Speaking of irony, another point I wanted to make about the Edomites. The Edomites cheered at the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar as Israel's enemies. The Edomites were the ones defending Jerusalem under the Romans when it fell in 70 AD. And you see the irony of the inversion, if you will, the very, the same, from God's point of view, the same tribe that was cheering its fall in 587 BC is uh, slaughtered by the Romans and not let one left alive. A million six slaughtered in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Interesting irony there. But anyway, getting back to Elam. Um, Oh, a couple other things about Elam. Um, their doom is prophesied uh, here in Ezekiel 32. Uh, they ultimately are resettled in Samaria when the Assyrians conquer them. Susa is where the Book of Esther takes place, if you recall. Uh, that's uh, an earlier capital of Elam. And Elamites are mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 9 of the day of Pentecost. So the Elamites show up. You and I would associate Elam with a portion of Iran. Okay. I forget how you pronounce it, but there's a particular district in, in, in Iran that are really what you and I would call Elamites. Okay, verse 35. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the chief of their might. Upon Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them toward all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam shall not come. If you don't believe that, grab a cab in Washington. Verse 37. You haven't been to Washington, I can tell. Okay. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. And I will bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord, and I will send the sword after them till, they, till I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy... From there the king and the princes, saith the Lord, and it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, saith the Lord. Now, here we have finished ten nations, Gentile nations, that God has prophesied to judge and has through Nebuchadnezzar and subsequent. It's interesting that God is dealing with these nations in the same way he deals with Israel. He judges them and punishes them for, uh, for their um, conduct. 
That's actually a strange idea, the more I think about it. We're used to the idea that God deals with Israel for all the biblical reasons from Genesis through Revelation, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But to really recognize that he focuses on nations is a heavy trip. I was going to take you to Daniel 4, time's too short. Daniel chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. There is a chapter in the book of Daniel written by Nebuchadnezzar. He opens and closes the chapter. It's his testimony. How through pride he was lifted up. God judged him for seven years. He, had, he suffered mental derangement. By tradition, not in the scripture, by tradition, his custodian during that seven-year period when he was ill was Daniel himself. But that's just a, a, a um, Mishnah tradition. But the point is, Nebuchadnezzar himself points out that the, that the God of heaven is the one that it raises kings up and brings them down. He didn't realize that. He now does. And he t writes his testimony and posts it throughout the known world in those days. The only part of the world he missed might have been in the very far east and in the feeble states in Europe, which didn't in those days amount to much. This was the major power fulcrum in the world. And God, it, I wanted to take you into Daniel 4, because you'll see that God puts him in charge of everything. Biblically, he's in charge of animals, the world. The, he's in charge. Strange idea. We don't think of despots that way, that God raised them up or that they're that his authority was that pervasive. But when you read the book of Daniel, you get hit with that. But something else I'd like to take the time to take a peek at. Turn with me to Daniel 10. And we're going to get another insight that's, that's a little bizarre. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying. He fasts for three weeks, 21 days. At the end of 21 days, God answers his fast in his prayer. Now visualize three weeks. Doesn't mean he didn't need anything, but it was just water and minimums, if you will, a fast of that kind. An angel comes and visits him. This angel is going to give him the final climactic vision in the book of Daniel, chapters 11 and 12, which complete the book. Chapter 10, 11, and 12 are like a unit, if you will. The first six chapters of Daniel are historical. The last six chapters are his visions, and very strange ones indeed. But Daniel chapter 10, this guy reaches him after 21 days of fasting, but he mentions something bizarre. We'll pick it up. Uh, but Daniel's, you know, his face, he's, in it, he's, he's really thrown to the ground, etc. In verse 10, in chapter 10, he says, And behold, a hand touched me and set me upon my knees and then the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright, for, I, for unto thee am I now sent. This is the messenger, this angel. And when he had spoken this word he, unto me, I stood trembling. I can imagine. Verse 12. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to ch chase thyself before the, thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Now bear in mind, for 21 days Daniel was fasting, and now this guy's arrived. When was he sent? 21 days ago. Now we don't have any concept of the time domain in the world of angels. But 21 days in Daniel's time went by. If the angels are without mass, they're without the time as we think of it. So it's a whole different issue. But there was a conflict delaying this guy. Notice verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, the, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. 
Now, not in verse 14, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. This angel is going to give Daniel, chapters 11 and 12, a vision of the end times. And I don't get into that tonight, but the interesting thing is, this guy set to Daniel was obstructed. And he's obstructed here by the prince of Persia and kings and things. Don't be confused by that language. Those aren't ranks of humans. Principalities, powers, and so forth are terms the Bible uses of ranks of angels. And this angel is in a combat situation. He is sent to Daniel and he's obstructed and held up for 21 days. And it isn't until angel, the archangel, comes to combat with him to get him through to meet Daniel. Now, what's interesting is this prophecy, okay, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1, was given in the third day of Cyrus, the king of Persia. But we see that the princes of the powers of Persia are obstructing this angel. Spooky stuff. You get the impression here, this is one of the rare glimpses we get behind the scenes in the world of the supernatural. And what's interesting is, is that this angel is sent to Daniel to respond to his prayer, but he's obstructed for 21 days. If you don't get visited, maybe it's because you're not fasting long enough. What if Daniel stopped his fast after 19 days? We don't know. It doesn't say that, but you sort of get the impression that that spiritual power is part of what's going on. But more important, more to the point for us, the princes that are obstructing Michael, Michael's always the archangel, he's always the military leader, he's always fighting on behalf of Israel, right. Gabriel's always messianic, has to do with the Messiah. Okay, Michael, Gabriel, is one other archangel mentioned in the Bible? Lucifer, different guy, different problem, we won't get to that tonight. <laughs> now, he then goes on, and he, say, he points out how he's been up this how he's been obstructed. Now he's come to tell Daniel all the super stuff. Verse 15, And when he'd spoken much words to me and set my face toward the ground, I became dumb, and behold, one like a similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. I opened my mouth and spoke, and he said unto him who stood before me, O my Lord, as verse 16, By the vision of my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remaineth no strength in me, neither is there any breath left in me. Verse 18, then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of man, and he strengthened me and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. He said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou why I have come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? In other words, he's explaining, once I give you my message, I've got all this neat stuff to tell you, Daniel, that's going to be 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12. But when I'm through doing that, I've got to go back and fight these guys. Okay? The prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. That's a long time later. What is it, a century later? that the powers of Macedonia and Alexander conquer the Persians. And Alexander, you know, his, his mother claimed that he was the supernatural offspring of her sexual relationship with the serpent. Now, that was probably just a political myth she fostered for propaganda reasons, but the bizarre background behind Alexander. But 
Alexander the Great rises at the age of 19, takes charge. At the age of 29, falls in his bed and weeps because there's no more known worlds left to conquer. The rise of Alexander, what, 100, 200 years later. But what the Bible gives you the impression is, it only said verse 21, and I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. And and verse 11 is part of that chapter, really. Uh, also I, the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm to strengthen him. And then he goes on and talks about some prophecies I don't want to get into tonight. What am I getting at? The Bible gives us the impression, clearly, that there are powers behind the major world powers. We have here the prince of the power of Persia, the prince of the power of Greece mentioned. These aren't the this isn't Darius he's talking about. It's some supernatural agency behind that. The Scripture gives us the impression several places, that perhaps the, both the spookiest but also the clearest, that behind nations and the things that you and I see, there's a supernatural warfare going on. But who is the ultimate quarterback? Who's ultimately in charge? God is. The God the Father. And, yeah, I mean, Satan is the God of this world, as we say. That's true. But who rises up kingdoms and brings them up and brings them down? God does. And that's what he's doing in Jeremiah, vis-a-vis -vis using Nebuchadnezzar to judge his own people, Judah, but also using Nebuchadnezzar to uh, set the report card straight on the other ten nations. Now, where does that leave us? We're very glibly assuming the United States you know, is a Christian nation. Gee, I don't think so. I see the Supreme Court has now decided that the only religion that can be taught in the schools is secular humanism, which does have a manifesto and is a religion. Creation science seems to have bit the dust. Not surprised, I'm glad in a way, in the sense that it strips away any superficial idea. It, it's essentially saying that we're, Francis Schaeffer was right, we're living in the post-Christian era. What does that mean for the U.S.? I don't know. Are we going to be like Jeremiah and be presiding over the death of the nation? Are we going, if, you know, as Billy Graham likes to say, if God doesn't judge America, he'll he have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Andy, the man Moab, and Ammon, and what have you. So we're in a very strange predicament. We're citizens. We care about this country. We should pray for this country. The good news is the United States is not listed in those nations. And what I mean by that is that judgment isn't certain. It isn't timed. It isn't in some order. There's opportunity for us to pray for this country and hope that God will avert judgment on behalf of the believers that are here. I think we need to get involved in our prayer closet. I don't know you feel solved by the ballot boxes, but I think God is fortunately in the miracle business. But the, to the extent that God had a quarrel with these nations, where does he stand with America, with the United States? You know, and as we look at our country and look at our morality, look at our, our schools, look at our values, look at our, our commitment to secular humanism in contrast to a deism, a belief in God, a commitment to his values, in whatever form of of, uh, of substance that, that, as it was traditionally since the founding of this country, I wouldn't call this country a Christian nation, but at least it espoused values that were consistent with the Christian worship. That's what it was founded for. And we clung to that for a lot of years, for a long time. But it's late, and we are, our country and its media is in the hands of the ungodly. And we've got a problem. And... Um, God will judge it, and that's our concern. Next time we have the last two chapters of Jeremiah, 50, Washington, 50, we're going to take on Babylon. We've talked a lot about the other nations. Next chapter is Babylon. Babylon is a whole different study. Yes, it was the dominant 
empire in Jeremiah's day, but Babylon captures our attention as students of the Scripture because of the book of Revelation, which talks deeply about mystery Babylon. There's something mystical about Babylon that the historical Babylon is only a hint of. And we'll be interested in Babylon's origin under Nimrod the hunter in Genesis, what role it's had in history. Most of what you and I know about life comes from Babylon. And um, uh, yet God has a very special destiny for Babylon. We're going to see a glimpse of it in Jeremiah 1551. We'll study, for those of you that want to do some homework for next time, read Revelation chapters 17 and 18 as background. And let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I don't know if you've ever had shots for foreign travel. If you have to go for a shot series of seven, you can do it two ways. You can take one a week for seven weeks, or you can go down there, grit your teeth, and take them all in one visit. And uh, some would argue that's a better way. I sort of felt that those chapters on these 10 nations would be better just to swing through and uh, not, not belabor it. Uh, I hope it wasn't too, too dry or dusty going through all that stuff. But God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all the nations. And in that sense, uh, he's a God to which the United States and our, you know, uh, America is accountable and needs our prayers. As you've heard me talk before, and we'll talk some more, is that we are in real trouble. We're in real trouble financially. We're in real trouble ethically. We're in real trouble militarily, serious trouble militarily. And we're in, in, in serious trouble spiritually. All you have to do is look at the drug scene, look at the pestilence called AIDS. All you have to do is look at the Christian community in this, this travesty that we call TV evangelism in all sides. It's, it must be a shame. Boy, I sure wouldn't trade places with any of those before the throne of grace. There's going to be a tragic, tragic accounting. It seems the Lord said something about a millstone and uh, so forth. Let's bar our hearts. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.